discussed by this podcast are not representative of our workplaces, families, friends, enemies, pets, or other entities that may associate with us, despite our opinions. gentlemen wherever you are welcome to the initial episode the pilot episode if you will of the unelectables my name is joey Oberhofner. i'm kirk schmidt and we are the unelectables now that's an interesting name kirk why did we decide to go with the unelectables well it turns out that you and i both have a history of not being elected when we have run as candidates that's true they say that the voter is always correct and if it's true that the voter is always correct then kirk and i are both unelectable But that doesn't mean that we don't know what we're talking about, that we don't know politics. We've actually spent a significant amount of time, both of us, within the party structures, within campaigns, running campaigns from the backgrounds. Uh, One of us has actually been marginally successful with a campaign. That's right, and the other one is Kirk. But that said, we we have some some semblance of what's going on, and, and we'd like to be able to share our insight with you, and then you can decide whether or not uh, it was worth your time or not. Absolutely. So... What we're going to do in this pilot episode uh, of The Unelectables is we're going to talk a little bit about what this show is going to be, how the show is going to come together. Our hope is to put out a show every couple of weeks. And in that time, in each show, we're going to collect a bunch of news that may have slipped through the cracks or things that you may have missed and try and give those to you as just the facts. That's going to be the front end of each show. We're not going to put any spin on it. We're not going to do any deep dives or any deep analysis. We're just going to talk about what the facts are. So if you happen to miss a story along the way, you can listen to it and not get ragey because Joey's coming at it from his usual odious center-right perspective or Kirk is being his typical bleeding-heart liberal socialist self. Well, you know me. Absolutely. Now, after we get through the news section, that's where things get a little bit more colorful, shall we say. We're going to talk about why things happen the way they happen, what things might be happening next. And especially as we look towards two elections in 2019, it's going to be very important, both on a provincial level and a federal level, to really see what's happening behind the scenes and why it matters. So please stick with us, listen along, uh, see if this is something that you would like to listen to from now on. And we'll start going through what the plan is. Now, I should throw a little bit of a nerd alert out there because Kirk and I are not what you would consider normal human beings. Beyond the fact that we actually are involved in politics and rather enjoy that involvement, there's also the fact that we are both huge geeks. So if you hear a comment relating to Star Trek or Star Wars, no, they're not the same thing, or you hear uh, some, some vague reference to something related to Dungeons & Dragons, don't panic. We're not trying to brainwash you. There's no subliminal messaging on the on the uh, audio. We're just speaking in the language of our tribe. And really, anytime we're doing this, we're rolling for initiative to begin with anyways. I don't know what that meant, but I think that's a good thing. So with that said, just like any pilot season, please bear with us for these first few episodes while we work out the kinks. Every great, great series has a couple episodes like Masks or The Naked Now. So just bear with us. And you know what? At some point, we will replace Joey Oberhofner with William Shatner. Paying attention so you don't have to. This is Unelectable News. Alberta is ready to increase its oil production after it had been curtailed. Production will rise to 3.63 million barrels per day in February and March. That's 75,000 barrels per day over what the limit was in January. In an absolute rite of passage and seemingly mandatory statement that happens every four years, the Premier of Alberta, in this case Rachel Notley, has rejected the idea of a provincial sales tax and says that a detailed plan for the NDP will come closer to the Alberta election. She has pointed out that she's not interested in bringing out 
a provincial sales tax, but also not interested in going back to the former government's flat taxation system, which she says would be a tax cut only for the highest 1% of earners in Alberta. The Alberta Teachers Association has declared that they are ready to spend $270,000 on ads in the next provincial election to talk about K-12 education and making it a provincial election issue. This is the maximum allowed amount by a third party within a provincial election. Alberta's election commissioner is digging into allegations that someone's attempting to obstruct his investigation into possible irregular campaign donations during the 2017 UCP leadership race won by Jason Kenney. A letter was sent by the election commissioner to possible witnesses in the case saying that the recipients will be asked about being contacted by someone who might have attempted to influence participation in the investigation. The United Conservative Party, for its part, denies involvement, saying it has not discouraged any individual from cooperating with the election commissioner as legally required. They expect laws to be enforced and will, of course, expect the election commissioner to carry out his mandate. Jason Kenney, leader of the United Conservative Party, has suggested that the federal government should eliminate the mortgage stress test for Albertans. He says that while overheating in markets like Vancouver and Toronto is possible, Alberta is quite the opposite, and so the idea that Albertan mortgage applications should have to withstand that stress test where they see if Albertans actually have the means to afford if the mortgage payments go significantly higher due to interest rates shouldn't be an issue, at least according to Kenny. This week, Premier Rachel Notley announced that her government was going to fund the Green Line in Calgary, a $4.65 billion 20-kilometer train line. Okay, so is this not a reannouncement, Or am I imagining that they're already building something called the Green Line? So the, the Green Line BRT is being built right now, the, the rapid transit. This is the actual track for the Green Line. Okay. All right, so here's a piece of news that's making the rounds today online and in most of the major dailies, and it is that the United Conservative Party under Jason Kenney here in Alberta has proposed that one of their first bills when they take office, assuming they take office, will be to make it illegal for the government to advertise anything of a non-urgent matter after December the 1st as we go into an election period. Just stand there in your wrongness and be wrong and get used to it. All right, so this is the part of the show where we dig a little deeper beyond the headlines and talk about what's really going on. And the topic that I think we want to start with today, Kirk, is the announcement regarding the Green Line by the Premier. Absolutely, and I, I think it, it really contrasts with what the United Conservative Party is proposing with respect to not allowing certain announcements for a certain period leading up to a provincial election. Okay, now I understand where the Conservatives are coming from with respect to not allowing any but urgent government announcements during that time period. Um, however, is that a bit of overkill? Because in reality, what that in effect does is to a degree it puts the government behind the opposition because the opposition can basically make campaign announcements for four years from the bully pulpit of the official opposition. And if the government is really hobbled and can't make any announcements after December 1st, doesn't that put them at a disadvantage? I, I don't think we're looking at it from that perspective because this is not the type of law that gets enacted. This is the type of law that gets talked about in an election and gets promised and never actually happens when the party comes into government because they realize, as incumbents, they don't want that law. Okay. So then, if that's the case, should a ban on government announcements before an election also extend to the speech from the throne and a budget? Well, that's, that's part of the problem, too, is these parts of the electoral system, of the democratic system, are set to happen at certain periods. So, for example, the budget happens in the spring. This is not something that randomly the government can decide, we want to do this in August it happens at a certain very, certain period of time and that's that's determined by the ways and means of the of the government okay so if this is the conservative policy and this is one of the few policies they've they've actually articulated thus far it's it's only february the 1st the campaign hasn't even officially started yet so i mean obviously there will be more announcements to come but this is the this is the one that's front and foremost in the mind at the moment 
Um, do you think the conservatives are going to take it a step further and actually articulate and put down in writing a specific day, a set election day, which is something a lot of people were calling for when the Redford government brought in this cutesy fixed election period law? Well, I still have trouble with the fixed election period because as much as it's been made a law, there's really nothing to prevent a government from simply going past it and, and effectively breaking that law. There's no real consequence for that. Or going early, as the Prentice government did in 2015. Under the law, they weren't supposed to have gone to the polls until spring of 2016. Right, so, so there's kind of a level of... It, it's a law that exists that is meant to discourage a government from doing that, but there's nothing really holding them to that. So having a specific day is no more powerful than having a time period outside of the idea that the electorate should be expecting it at a certain point and, and the opposition party should be preparing at a certain point. But but it's really difficult to say necessarily what would happen in, in certain cases. And of course right now we're in we're in this you know, what else what I'll call peacetime and we have been for a very long time, but there is precedent in can Canadian history to actually extend governments past even the four or five year mark in order to accompany something that has happened, right? When we're looking at the unionist government in the First World War. So, you know, one can one could say, you know, you have to block it as, at a certain point, but if, if circumstances take hold that things need to be held off for whatever reason that we can't even express right now, then it's very possible that that can hamstring governments as well. Okay. But, so I guess you could chalk up the fixed election period, or even if you wanted to go a step further and, and say a specific fixed election day law, um, that sort of goes in the same category as, um, as any other law that doesn't really have the teeth, teeth to enforce, like the law in Alberta that says you have to hold a referendum if you want to bring in a provincial sales tax. Well, all you need is a majority government and you can rewrite that law. Or the law, for example, the NDP's Bill 1, which was around uh, electoral reform and around uh, spending caps and that sort of thing. A lot of people are of the opinion that a conservative government would take a serious look at reforming that law. So governments aren't really held to account for the laws that they write, except by the electorate every four or three or five years. And I think, I think that's where we need to look at this is it becomes a question of, of the power of the electorate. And, and I think to some degree, we don't always exercise that power that we have available to us. In terms of, say, the green line spending, which we started with, do we as an electorate have fundamental issue with spending $4 billion effectively right before what should be an election period? And should we punish the government specifically for that. One may have their their reasons for not liking the NDP, but if we were to boil it down to that issue, is that enough for the electorate to punish the NDP? And it may be and it might not be. Mm -hmm. But I think that's something that to some degree has to be left to the electorate. I mean, again, we can create the laws, but all it takes is a government to change those laws and, and we're good to go. Right. Now, I would say that the people in Southeast Calgary certainly don't have any issue with spending over $4 billion on the Green Line because they've been waiting for it seemingly forever. But I wonder if the people in Grand Prairie or the people in Fort McMurray are as eager to spend their tax dollars on this transit system for Calgary. Now, is it the issue that the announcement happened this close to an election and it's being seen as an electoral PR move? Or is the issue that the contract is signed the commitment is made, even if that was made in a back room with no fanfare and no hoopla. Because I also saw that the United Conservatives are saying they want to review any contracts that the uh, Alberta government uh, awards during the election period. Uh, and, and the comment that was made over and over that I saw on social media was, uh, it seems like the NDP are going to try to sign checks to their friends on what the Conservatives believe is their way out of office. So is this more the second, or is this just the fact that they don't like that it's being used as a PR move this close to an election? I think it's got to be a PR move, because even in terms of what policy we know of at this point, you know, what is a major announcement? What is, a, what is an announcement that is, is urgent? You know, and, and can we 
can we differentiate the two with with real data to say one is this one is the other i mean one could say that the green line has been such an issue for so long maybe there is information to say that this needed to happen now again this is this is arguable but but that becomes part of the question too is is how do you how do you even enforce this policy in terms of identifying what is urgent what is a major announcement and so on and so forth okay so then the issue then is not that people are making decisions during the election period the issue is that they're making announcements right and that's that's definitely a pr issue and one could say that that is exceeding the election limits in terms of spending because effectively that is a four billion dollar announcement during an election period that the NDP have committed to. Okay, so then theoretically, if the New Democrats had signed this deal behind closed doors and not held a, a big announcement about it, but instead Rachel Notley at a campaign stop a week from now said from a podium that was paid for by the New Democratic Party, hey, we just signed a contract with Calgary. I can't get into the details, but I think you're going to like what you see. Is that allowed? I think it would be, but I don't, I don't know that that's an announcement you want to make either, right? I mean, you don't want to make it look like nobody else was in the room where it happened, right? Mm -hmm. You really want there to be some level of accountability involved with that. If you make it look like, oh, this, this happened in a back room and it's dealt with, I think, I think there's some problems from a PR perspective that way for the party. So I, I think what this would end up doing is causing no announcement at all. Okay. And so just touching back on the fixed election date idea for, for a moment, because we have fixed election dates uh, down in the United States. And correct me if I'm wrong, don't we have a fixed election date for federal elections here? Do we know exactly what day the next federal election is? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so the, the, the federal election, they actually went and said the specific day of the specific month based okay. on a number of criteria. That's great. So uh, using even that example then, I've heard it said time and time again that all functions of government really become about re-election uh, four to five months before election day. Now, if that's true, and we know exactly when the election is coming, as we do in the case of the federal government, um, you know, how, is is three months a suitable window, or are you going back even further and four and five months back? You're saying, okay, you know what? For the next four or five months, government really can't make any big announcements. And and how do we define what a big announcement is? Because I know there are some government agencies in the province that right now can't even, for example, announce that they're having a family fun day uh, through social media because it's seen as campaigning for the party in power. I think right now we just, there's too little information on this policy and there's too many unknowns. Mm -hmm. Is this a policy plank that average Albertans are going to carry with them into the ballot box? Or is this just uh, the first policy in a line of policies that are going to be brought out by the Conservatives because policy is expected to be brought out at this time and they're going to save the real meat and potatoes issues for a little closer, the ballot box questions for when they'll be for, first and foremost in people's minds? Here's, here's the thing. I don't think this is going to sway necessarily somebody who's sitting on the fence and going, you know, I could see some advantages of the NDP, I could see some advantages of the UCP, and so on and so forth. I think this does a few things for the UCP. It, it helps bolster their base, right, and creates that wedge issue. Uh, I think it will be part of kind of a multi-pronged attack in terms of accountability, right? You have this young government, this NDP government, they've had one term, um, you have relatively inexperienced MLAs. So being able to, to attack something like accountability should be relatively easy. And so this is just one of many things. And I think that's where this comes out in mm -hmm. and where, where the narrative will be created around you can't trust the NDP, trust us instead. And this, this is just one part of it. Do you think that this is actually striking the NDP uh, in a place where they're particularly weak? Or is this uh, just a little bit of projection? Because I know that in 2015 in Alberta, 
the perception that you can't trust the PCs was a very real and palpable sense. Uh, people didn't have a great deal of trust in the party after the Redford scandals. People didn't have great trust in the party after the Wild Rose opposition crossed en masse uh, to the Jim Prentice uh, party. Uh, people within the party didn't have great trust about how that leadership race uh, came down the pipe and, and worked out. So is the United Conservative Party identifying an issue that they perceive the NDP as being particularly weak in, or are they trying to draw attention away from what their right hand is doing? Hey, look over here at the left hand and blunt a little bit of the impact of these big announcements the New Democrats are making. You know, it's it's really hard to to look at this as a single strategy, right? I think that I think there's a lot of value in doing this, even in terms of, of acting as a litmus test, and saying, okay, we we're going to go after a certain general type of policy. We're going to see how this works with Albertans. What they may find is that Albertans are like, yeah, we should not allow this. This is this is crap, and and. Uh, Finally, somebody's doing something about it. Um, it might be something to the effect of a distraction, you know, even from from some of the uh, some of the things that that have been said or found out by certain candidates. Um, so, so there's there's a lot of reasons why this might exist. In the end, it could be as simple as a fundamental belief going forward, uh, and this would go against kind of my. Uh, against my original thesis of of that this won't happen but maybe there is a genuine belief that you know what it's time that we institute something like this because that's a good thing for democracy and so uh, to some degree it's it's really hard as an outsider to look at it and say definitively it is one of these strategies okay um, but to be clear this is something this this these government announcements during uh, what is perceived to be the start of an election. This is something that happens basically everywhere, right? I mean, Jason Kenney did it as a senior cabinet minister under the Harper government. The PCs did it for 40 years. Uh, the New Democrats are doing it now, but they've done it in other provinces where they're the government. This is not this is not a new issue that is unique to the provincial NDP in Alberta. No, and, and it's definitely something that's been brought up before. Maybe not as cohesive as a policy as of this day, this will not happen, blah, blah, blah. But certainly in terms of governments should not be making these types of announcements. These are words that have been said, and I'm, you know, my memory's a little short, but I feel like that's actually something the NDP attacked the PCs on at at least some point in the past. So it's something that happens with governments. I don't think it's something that will ever actually be fixed. I think it makes for a really good talking point, potentially a good litmus test, potentially a good distraction. Okay, but you don't think that we're going to legislatively end up with a Gandalf standing on the bridge saying, past December 1st, if you are a PR person for the government, you shall not pass. Exactly. Well, let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. I see this is the way it's going to go already. Um, well, let's talk about the carbon tax. Okay. What do you want to talk about the carbon tax? Is it as bad as people say it is? Well, um, I think that the challenge with it is people are having a hard time seeing what good it actually does. People are looking for it to say, well, is it effective in that it stops climate change? And the answer to that is no. But... Proponents of the carbon tax will say that's not what it's for anyway. Well, is it is it really kind of like the idea of doing progressive water metering like some cities do, where the more water you use, the more expensive it gets and, and it becomes a preventative measure? Or are people simply going to use the same amount of energy they have prior and now they're just putting more out of their wallets for it? Well, I think that the closest analogy I can come up with is the idea of a sin tax. Right. If you buy cigarettes, you pay a lot of tax on top of those. So if you buy cigarettes, shout out to Derek, hi Derek, um, and you're paying all that tax, in theory, that money is going to be used to boost the healthcare system to pay for the effects of that smoking. Under that same logic, is the money that you're paying in the carbon tax being used to actually 
do things to help the environment or is it being used just to redistribute wealth and send money to people at the lower end of the tax uh, scale? Well, I, th I think the problem is that any taxation like this goes to general revenues. Right. So it's, it's really difficult to draw that line between this money has been brought in for X and it's going to be spent on X. And at the same time, you don't really want to create a significant infrastructure to track that because that's just going to cost mm -hmm. a significant portion of your tax to, to administer. Right, which is where the conservatives get off saying things like, we can cancel the gr uh, carbon tax and still pay for the green line, whereas the New Democrats are using the opposite argument and saying, we are funding the green line, the provincial portion thereof, entirely through the carbon tax, and if you cancel it, that money is gone. Well, they're both right, but they're also both wrong. Right. Or wrong. Okay, Kirk, let's talk a little bit about polls because we see a lot of public opinion polls being published nowadays in the dailies in Alberta. Uh, we just had a news story come across the ticker regarding the polling in the Vancouver Island by-election that happened in BC earlier this week. Um, what is wrong with polls? Why don't they work? You know a little bit about math, don't you? Uh, something about math, yeah. So I think there's a few things going on. So first of all, polling is always a point in time, right? So a single poll performed one time on one date is going to not be as effective as running effectively the same poll over and over through multiple days and, and looking at trends. Because what we're really looking at is how things are changing as elections happen. If we're looking at, at a snapshot in time, that's like me saying, okay, it's, it's February 1st, I'm going to, to some degree say, what what may happen as of May 1st based on based on opinion without knowledge of what policies are going to be announced what eruptions are going to happen what things are going to be said what debates are going to be be performed all of those types of things right so so you're really just trying to get a point in time then there's the issue of how you get that data so Polling firms have become more sophisticated over the last few years in being able to get information from people who, uh, who, who don't have landlines, right? Because that was kind of the traditional problem is, is landlines, you know, it's not the type of thing where, where people are holding on to with, with cell phones and things like that. So you've got a smaller and smaller and, and potentially a more biased pool that is going to be answering these questions and therefore swaying those numbers to a level that might not be indicative of the general popula population. Right. In the last hundred days, I can count on one hand the number of days I've woken up and not found a link to a poll in my email. Right. So that's, that's the new way that they're doing it as opposed to just blanket dialing? Well, there, there's a few different ways, right? The, I mean, the, they're going after cell phones as well. That's not necessarily out of the question. It's just... There are certain rules as to what they have to do with that. Certainly over email, web, um, telephone, and they're they're usually doing a combination of those. Mm -hmm. But again, it's it's point in time, and and really to, you know, I, I remember a few elections ago, um, after the Wild Rose eruptions uh, by Huntsberger and Leach, uh, we had you know first of all the Wild Rose was ahead and looking like they were going to beat the Progressive Conservatives in the Alberta election. And on election day, it didn't happen, right? And so, so there was kind of this mass backlash against polls. And for anybody working within any of the parties where you were doing internal polling and had some some semblance of what was going on, uh, from people I've talked to, and, and I was working on a Wild Rose campaign at the time, we were all seeing the same thing, which was the Wild Rose was rising, 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 and then none of them showed up to vote. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's an indication of public opinion at a very specific time. If you were to continue to run those polls for Election Day, which some did, they just didn't publish that or, or it wasn't you know, really carried by the news, it actually showed the same trend. It showed that drop off, that cliff. So, so there's something to be said as well about you know, things can change uh, on a dime. So, I mean, I guess it's sort of the analogy that I would lean towards being a bit of a sports nerd myself is to look at the standings in the NHL on February 1st and say, based on these standings, 
Um, you know, Washington should beat New York next week, and then uh, Pittsburgh should beat Toronto, and then at the end of the year, uh, the Stanley Cup champions should beat Tampa Bay. Like, that's, that's all fine and good as an opinion, but is there scientific validity to making a statement like that looking at the standings in the NHL currently? Yes and no. I mean, you have to you have to look at it from the perspective of this is telling you what people believe at a certain point in time. It's not necessarily telling you these people for sure are going to go out and vote. Mm-hmm. It's not telling you that these players are going to definitely go out and score. They have a propensity to score, but they're not necessarily going to score in those. Another thing that, that plays against polls in in Canada and the U.S. is the first post the, the first past the post democratic system, mm-hmm. right? Because as much as you can have one group being ahead by a large percentage of another, there are areas where that number may shift, right? This is an aggregate score for the province, right? So there are areas, for example, like Calgary, where one might expect the NDP to not do as well. Mm-hmm. At the same time, NDP might do better in Edmonton. So the Edmonton score might bolster the NDP's numbers. The Calgary score might bring it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of the rural area, it might bring it down. So it's really hard to say that it's going to be exactly these num- numbers of, of ridings that they're going to win based on these percentages. Right. Well, I noticed in the polling information you read during the news segment, you were talking about how the uh, how Derek Fildebrandt's Freedom Conservative Party was polling around, I think it was 4%. Right. Um, they have, what, two candidates right now? Yeah. So, I mean, if they're polling at 4% in the province, um, that's not voting very well. But if they're polling at 4% because Fildebrandt has a 20,000 vote lead over his next closest opponent in his riding, that's a much bigger deal for that party. Absolutely. Okay. And, and the other thing to know about polls is polls are based on a, on a sample population, right? Now, it might, it might feel like 500 people is not enough to really talk about the province. Mm-hmm. Uh, mathematically, it holds water as long as the poll is unbiased, as long as we've got a perfectly random sample, right? Like there's a lot of caveats in that. But fundamentally it works because, you know, if, if you think you've got 10 people in a room and one person, uh, you pull one person and, and you, you know, you're asking, you know, what was your favorite part of the meal today? And, and somebody says the cheese plate, um, you know, using one person for a group of 10 is not a really good sample. You're not going to get a good, good semblance of what's really going on. It's just one opinion. If you add one person to that, right, so now you're polling two people, you're going to be a little bit closer to that population, right, mm-hmm. and and so on and so forth. Similarly, it works with larger populations, right? So if you poll 100 people out of 4 million, you're going to get a certain certain amount of, of accuracy there. Mm-hmm. And as you increase that number, you're going to you're going to decrease the error, but there's still going to be some. So so of course all those extra numbers that they report, or or sometimes don't report, um, are really important in in polling information as well because you want to know what your margin of error is, right? And sometimes you'll see something like, you know, it's twenty seven percent plus or minus three percent nineteen times out of twenty, and and so those numbers are part of that. So what you'll find is if you were to run the poll 20 times, theoretically one of those times, the numbers would be off, right? That's the 19 times out of 20. So there, there are these pieces to it as well that, that allow it to work mathematically but might not be the best indication of what's going to happen with the polls on election day. Okay. So we know why parties release polls. It's because they're they're trying to trumpet that they're being successful, or for that matter, trying to uh, activate their base. And we know why uh, media organizations release polls. Often it's to further a narrative or to push their editorial slant. But why do pollsters themselves, who don't necessarily have skin in the game, uh, who haven't been paid by any particular party, who haven't been paid by any particular media organization to have a slant. Why do they go out of their ways and put themselves out there to to release polling information that, while useful as a snapshot in time, 
doesn't really serve any useful purpose to them as an organization. Well, there's a lot of potential reasons for that. I mean, it could be just as simple as they're political nerds like us, and they want to have an idea of what what's going on. Part of it is an advertising piece, right? I mean, polling firms make money doing surveys for organizations, right? Like, like brand awareness surveys and, and things like that. So there's value in getting their name out there for sure. Um, you know what? One has to look at, you know, think, thinking of last election, um, outside of any polling firm that really got it wrong, right? Like so massively got it wrong um, or, or you, know, was, you know, they're arrogant about the way that, that things went or, or whatever. Outside of any of those, you know, can you name all of the polling firms that got it wrong? No. Right? And, but if you get it right, if you, if you happen to, to just, you've got the right sample, you've got, you've got the right questions, and it's, it's really asking the right things that end up influencing election day, there's a lot of power in that as a polling firm to be able to say, look, we got this right. So it's the opposite of a sports official then. If a, if a referee at a Stampeders game, if you know his name, Chances are it's because he's done something wrong, not because he does everything right. That's right. Okay. So put yourself in the shoes of a campaign manager for a provincial campaign. The whole province is your ball of wax. It's a month to election day. Would you rather a poll was released that puts you 15 points back or 15 points ahead? You know, I think, I think that answer is depends. There's... A lot of value in being the front runner you know and it's really funny as humans right because we have this space you know in front of this cardboard box effectively that you get to write something down and nobody will know what you wrote down you know outside of if you were the one person in your writing who voted or, or in your polling station that voted you know outside of that you pretty much can't tell how one person voted one way or another and yet we want to back a winner right it's it's very much a kind of a herd mentality right we want to be part of the winning team and so being ahead close to the end of the election can be a benefit i would say if you're polling 15 points ahead and the last poll you were 10 points ahead and the poll before that you were five that's beautiful like that that's what you want because Effectively, people are going to go, yeah, like the momentum's behind them. I'm backing a winner. If it's the opposite, that's not a poll I want released, right? That's a poll that's basically going, we are losing position. We don't know what we're doing. You know, people are, are finally turning against us, right? So there's, there's a lot of problems. So again, it, it comes down to snapshot in time. Right. What what is the trending information? What is going on in the background? Um, even even in terms of if you are an underdog and you're 15 points behind, but but there's kind of this this feel of, of underdog that might be beneficial, right? Like think think of the civic election where Nenshi was elected, mm -hmm. right? There, like there's a lot of underdog feel. And yet the polls going into election day that day indicated that it would be a very strong victory for Rick McIver, who was an incumbent alderman uh, at the time. And is there a danger in being seen to be ahead in that your people, especially if there's bad weather or just something comes up, your people will go, you know what? My guy's got it. I can just stay home. He doesn't need my vote. And, and I, that's always a problem. And, and we've, you and I have definitely seen it in elections mm -hmm. where people don't show up to vote for one reason or another. And that's certainly a danger in being far enough ahead is there's no compelling reason to go out. Okay. So the election that's uh, at the front of our minds right now, of course, is the provincial election in Alberta, which needs to happen at some point in the next four months. Um, given that and having looked at the polls... Uh, in Alberta over the course of the last little while, do you think the New Democrats or the Conservatives are more worried about what they're seeing, seeing in those publicly released polling numbers? I would be concerned if I were part of the UCP at this point. Okay, why? 
and and part of that is because there was a very strong propensity for the UCP to win this election. So there's there still is strong propensity for them to win this election. Uh, but I felt like last year was Jason Kenney's year, right? That was the year where where suddenly people were talking about him being the next premier of Alberta. What we're seeing in polls now is that Rachel Notley's ratings are improving. And so even though the UCP is far ahead, there's kind of a level of, are people, were people just kind of listening to the rhetoric last year and not really looking deeply and now that there's the possibility of an election you know as soon as a, a few weeks away uh now they're starting to look at things and go oh you know is it a devil we know situation um and then of course because now there's a vetting of candidates and i'm sure this is is going to play into things if there are more issues with candidates in one particular party and, and it seems to have been generally towards the UCP right now uh, that's not what you want you don't really want to be ahead and be slipping at this point so that's kind of the danger the UCP is playing right now at the same time what they really need to do is just you know kind of lock in that no we are the next government and we are you know we have the policies and we have the experience and we're ready to go forward with that. But right now, I, I would say it's a little bit tumultuous for the UCP. It's it's strong. It's encouraging. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly, if I if I were a candidate for the UCP, uh, I would feel really good about the numbers that were released. Uh, but as as somebody who would be running the campaign, I would be a little bit concerned. Okay, and it's worth noting as well that uh, at least according to the polls that came out this week. Rachel Notley is polling ahead of her party, but Jason Kenney is polling behind his in terms of personal popularity. Does personal popularity of the leader uh, become the be-all and end-all as people are sitting in the ballot box, understanding that, in very few exceptions, uh, the, the leader's name is not on the ballot, right? It's the name of a local candidate and then the name of their party. So... Um, when people walk into their local polling place and see John Smith, bracket UCP, close bracket, are they thinking, I don't know if I trust Jason Kenney? Or are they marking UCP even if they've never met Mr. Smith? Because, well, the, 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 the media is saying the UCP has this in the bag. It's, it's a double-edged sword. I, you know, we have really entered in probably the last, last few decades this this personality politics of the leader right um you know and we can go we can go as far back to to talking about say like preston manning and having to change his appearance change uh the pitch of his voice he loves that word reform exactly that you know this 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 change that happened i mean the leader was always important but there seems to be this hyper focus that has happened over the last few decades on the leader. And, and that's really beneficial when your leader is pulling ahead. That can be really dangerous when your leader is behind. Uh, because the, they, are the, they are the face, they are the voice of the party, right? And so, so because of this, we, we also have this very top-down structure of these parties, right? That, like there's very much this view that J Jason Kenney is the UCP mm -hmm. and so so personality wise if he's if he's falling behind that could spell problems for the UCP it could also be that people don't care right there, there are cases where like looking at not you know everything doesn't happen in a vacuum right so so looking at Rachel Notley if people have problems with Notley have problems with the the NDP Jason being behind might not be a bad thing if if people are thinking in terms of we need to get rid of the government, right? So there there is something to be said about the leader. There there's some importance there. It's really hard, you know, to to say it is the be all and end all versus it's not important. But you know, it's somewhere in between. But there definitely is value to the leader uh, pulling ahead of their party, mm -hmm. um, or at least close to. So, 
ignoring just for a moment the possibility of a bozo eruption, right? And that's a that's an Alberta term that I think has started to be used a little more frequently outside of Alberta, uh, but it's a it's a lake of fire moment. Aside from that, how much does a local candidate really matter? I mean, we see examples of great local candidates uh, like, uh, say, Greg Clark, whose party had no profile but still managed to win a seat. But when we talk about uh, people who crossed the floor uh, or people who landed somewhere else after the Progressive Conservative Party folded up shop, um, when we talk about just uh, people often trot out the, the term star candidate, how much does the local candidate really matter? Or is it all on the leader? I mean, we saw a lot of really well-known uh, cabinet ministers get defeated uh, by the orange wave by virtual unknown candidates. Were people in those ridings voting for those candidates or were they just voting for a change? I think, I think they were voting for a change. That doesn't mean that the local candidate is not important, right? So there are definitely times where the local candidate has proven to be far greater than any party position, right? So, you know, some really good examples of that would be like Chuck Cadman federally, mm -hmm. you know, back in back in the 2000s, right? I mean, he lost the conservative nomination. He was the incumbent. Uh, he was well known in his his area because of what he was fighting for and ended up elected anyways, right? Didn't Garth Turner do that too, or did I imagine that? Yeah, uh, Turner, I believe, did as well. Mm -hmm. um, there have been a few There have been a few people who have become independents who were part of parties that that has happened to. Um, similarly, there are places of strength in parties where, uh, where they have strong candidates. And, and I would argue if you have strong candidates, that helps support the leader. The leader can tank the party easily and there there'd be something to be said about for example with the Huntsberger and Leach issues um, it wasn't so much their eruptions as it was how the party and how the leader handled them that tanked the party at the end um, so you know local candidates have impact but again it's it's all part of this much larger package in terms of the NDP four years ago Absolutely, it was about change, and to some degree, I think being an incumbent, especially a well-known cabinet minister, might have actually worked against them. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, some relatively unknown candidate, it might not, it might not have played as much. Um, you know, and, and we actually saw some some PCs who had never been elected before elected in that same election where the NDP swept. One of them. One of them. Yeah. So. Again, it's, it's you know, I, I feel like I'm going to be saying it depends a lot because it, it really does. You sound very much like a lawyer. No offense. <laughs> it won't be any news to anybody listening to this podcast, but the U.S. government was shut down for the better part of a month with Donald Trump saying he would not reopen until he got funding for his border wall. And spoiler alert, he didn't. But some functions of the U.S. federal government were restarted uh, fairly recently. They do have a set timeline, though, uh, with which to negotiate a funding deal for that wall. Or Trump says he very well may shut things down again. You know, it's a, it's a unique situation to the United States in terms of shutting down a government uh, to raise a debt ceiling. Mm -hmm. Right? Because this is what it comes down to is, is the government runs out of money and they're not allowed to borrow until Congress allows that to happen, right? So they raise the debt ceiling, they do the budget, and then government can keep going. We don't really have that situation here, right? We, we just basically go farther and farther into debt. Um, ironically, it takes a government shutdown in the United States for workers to work without pay. In Canada, we've been doing it since the Harper government under the Phoenix pay system. <laughs> but... But effectively, this idea of actually shutting down the government is is definitely U.S., uh, but it affects us, right? It affects our industries. I mean, uh, th think in terms of, of anybody who might need uh, to build a product with FCC licensing. Mm -hmm. Well, now you've got to wait until the government opens. Um, so so there, it affects us here in terms of, of a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there's something to be said about 
about it affecting us from an industry perspective. Um, you know, and, and also the, the politics around it, I think, help help change narratives here too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very oppositional um, system down there. Right, which I think is uh, an outcome that can't help but stem from this two-party system. I mean, now the Americans don't have a codified two-party system. Uh, in a very real sense, you can have three or four or five or six parties, but it's basically almost impossible to get elected on a federal level if you're outside of one of the two major parties, especially for president. I mean, we've seen some very well-heeled people try to do it in the past. Ross Perot springs to mind, and it just it it doesn't work out. It it can't for for numerous reasons. Uh, it's legal to put your name on the ballot, but it won't do you much good. Now, um, this this opposition oppositional, you know, you or me, A or B type of system, we've seen really assert itself in Alberta uh, and and Canada as a whole. Politics seems to have gotten a lot more personal, or maybe it's just that we're getting old and we're reminiscing about the good old days when Ralph Klein would throw money at homeless people, you know, our progressive past. But when we talk about um, this, this rise of populism and this idea that it doesn't matter if it makes sense, it doesn't matter if it's good policy, all that matters is that 50% plus one of the electorate is behind it and I will be put in power. Is that something that is sort of leeching off the U.S. into us? Or has it always been an undercurrent to, to Canadian and Albertan politics? Well, I, I mean, there's always been an oppositional nature. I mean, even even the, the House of Commons is built so that the two sides are two sword lengths apart. I mean, there's, there's always been that history of opposition. Uh, and, I mean, we call it the official opposition. Uh, but it kind of goes back to, you know, there's an old Monty Python sketch about what is an argument. And... And they argue about whether one person saying yes and one person saying no is an argument. And and one has to wonder, like, is that is that what opposition's job is? Is opposition's job to say no when the government says yes? Um, or is it to to improve, to modify, to uh, to pick it apart where it needs where it needs a good hard look? I don't know. What do you say? Well, I <laughs> I say yes. Then I say no. So, so there's this, this level of, I think we've moved more to that yes-no uh, style. Like, it, it's the type of thing where um, if, if the NDP had proposed that no government announcements uh, happen as of December 1st, uh, had they proposed that exact policy four years ago, you know, would we at the time have said... You know, no, of course not. You know, PCs, PCs would be against it. The Conservatives would be against it. And then four years later, you know, it, it turns. And that happens with policy during during elections. We see policy come back that, that effectively other parties have, have stated and just, you know, it's, it's, they're against it when, when it's proposed by somebody else. I, I think that is happening more. Mm-hmm. Or that, that's what it feels like to me. And, and me, again, maybe we're just getting old and 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 reminiscing but you know there there were a lot of stories um you know especially federally about mps going out for drinks after parliament from opposing parties and you know have and being able to converse and and being able to to work with each other you know um at night and then work against each other during the day so and and i don't know that that's happening anymore i don't know that you know, I, I don't really see Jason Kenney um, going and, and buying a drink for Deborah Drever, for example. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's it's I think we're getting more oppositional, but it's in very subtle ways. And do you think we're getting more oppositional because just as a culture, that is that is where the shift is happening? Or or is it the case that we get more oppositional because it works. I mean, let's be clear. I mean, Jason Kenney is many things, uh, but one thing he's never been is a loser. He's never lost an election, and he's always been very aggressive in his politics. 
So when you look at that, you can you can use any number of words to describe the man, but the one word that you have to use is successful. Does success breed imitation? And do people act like Donald Trump or act like Jason Kenney? And I want to be perfectly clear, I am not equating the two. I know for a fact that Jason Kenney is not a fan of Donald Trump, so I'm not meaning to say that they're the same in any way, except that they both won um, uh, their, their most recent uh, electoral endeavor, and Kenny has won many before. So do people see the way that people like that run their campaigns or comport themselves or run their parties and say, that is a model that I want to uh, follow and maybe tweak a little bit. And so we get away from the sort of collegial atmosphere because what happened to the progressive conservatives of Peter Lougheed? They got voted out. It's really hard to say. I mean, can can we say with uh, reasonable certainty that the NDP got elected four years ago because they were running a campaign of fear and and uh, they were they were running this high oppositional piece, or, or were they endeavoring to be? the government and and do good things and and i would argue the ndp probably you know as much as there's some oppositional piece i would say they probably went more towards that we are government and, and i would actually argue that where rachel notley started to really pull ahead was when she started kind of assuming that she could win mm-hmm. um and you look at the united states i mean the president prior to trump the campaign was hope I mean, the the one speech that, that I'm sure many people remember about about hope that, that came out from the the early Obama campaign really is what helped carry that campaign forward. And yes, really we can, and there's never been anything false about hope. That's right. So I think it's a pendulum, right? There, there are times when hope and that positive outlook work. I think there's times when... Uh, fear and the negative outlook work. Uh, one of the things that we're seeing right now, of course, is this talk about the economy. Mm-hmm. The problem is, in a lot of places, it doesn't feel like it holds weight. Right? There's a lot of talk that the economy's down, and yet restaurants, at least from what I've seen, are busy. Maybe I go to the wrong places. Mm-hmm. I probably do. But but it feels like the economy is not nearly as bad as, as it seems like it is from from some talking points that we're hearing. So I think I think in general there's there is some level of imitation of of what has worked before. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know that it necessarily wins elections. I think I think there's there's kind of that piece of you need to strike the right chord with the the right electorate at the right time. Right. And so bringing it back around to the Americans, which is where we started here with the discussion of the the, the shutdown, um, does this oppositional nature inevitably lead to where the Americans find themselves, which is you have uh, a president who cannot, um, uh, he, he cannot give in, he cannot back down, or he's going to lose face with his voters. Uh, and you have Democrats in the uh, House of Representatives who cannot back down because they're going to lose face with their voters. And so the opportunity for any sort of meaningful negotiation or any sort of compromise, right? Compromise becomes this four-letter word that, that you dare not go. Um, is, is that where we're inevitably headed? I, not necessarily, right? Because unlike the U.S. federal system... We only have one house provincially, mm-hmm. right? Like even even our federal government is a little bit different because we have uh, both the House of Commons and the Senate. In Alberta, there is no Alberta Senate, right? There's there is the one legislative house, and whomever controls that controls effectively the policy, right? So the only time it really becomes an issue is a minority parliament. But even then there are rules in terms of if the government can't get its things through, right? You can you can have things like the budget or the throne speech that are confidence votes, and they could actually lose government by not having the support. So it's not like the U.S. where one house is against one thing, one house is for something, they vote for bills, and never 
do things happen because they're in complete opposition in the end in the legislative house if there's opposition it's likely going to move forward one way or another there's there's kind of enough structure to continue to move government forward right but is the absence of say a, a second house or a chief executive with meaningful power rather than a lieutenant governor uh, is is that necessarily a good thing? I mean, we see the case in British Columbia, where essentially the BC government is able to be held hostage by a very small Green Party caucus uh, because of the minority situation they find themselves in. Otherwise, I mean, if the if the New Democrat Premier John Horgan of British Columbia came forward with a policy that the Greens didn't like, that was a potential um, a confidence motion he could lose government and uh, British Columbians could be thrust right back into an election or for that matter the BC Liberals could take over if the Greens decided to back them for a period of time. Is that a better system? Well I think it provides structure. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't necessarily say better. I mean our majority government basically allows whatever government we we elect in to kind of do to some degree what they want for the four years, right? There's very little way that things can be opposed once they're, once they're controlled by a majority government. Obviously, there's committees and, and there's, there's certain places where, where some, some legislative magic can be done occasionally. But for the most part, the government in control has control. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's potentially a problem, right? Like We don't have the, the balance of power the same way that maybe some some things in the u.s do at the same time what you're describing in bc i feel is is actually the system working the way it's supposed to right as much as the green party hold a lot of power the fact of the matter is a proper compromise and and a proper proper policy that that benefits not even necessarily the greens but the liberals there's there's possibility of of going forward. There's possibility of something happening. And even even if they lose confidence in in the legislative house, then there is there is still movement. So there's there's almost um, there's almost incentive to to compromising to some degree. You can't be a hardliner at that point. Mm -hmm. So I think that's beneficial. I think. You know, on the other side, this this majority situation can be problematic, um, but then again, at that point, it should be the voters' responsibility to do something about that. All right. So I'm going to hold you to a three-second answer on this very important question, and I'm going to ask you this question every episode of this podcast until you get it right. Online voting, a great idea or the greatest idea? Go. Oh, I hate you so much, Joey. Oh, I'm sorry we're out of time. Thank you very much. And as we wrap up our inaugural episode of The Unelectables, I will ask you, Kirk, for your parting words of wisdom. Well, for all of you candidates out there, it's now time to buy your shoes in bulk. You will go through multiple pairs over the next few months, so you might as well get a few at the beginning right away. All right, until next time, I have been the enlightened savage, Joey Oberhoffner. And I'm Kirk Schmidt. And we are The, the Unelectables.